Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by David Schoenfield. David is a senior writer at ESPN.com and editor of the Sweet Spot blog. You can give David a follow on Twitter at D. Schoenfield. David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. You bet. Glad to be here, Ross. Well, Dave, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. <laughs> wow, that's kind of a loaded question. Uh... I guess like every other kid, I just uh, fell in love with the game first time I saw it. Uh, I was growing up in Seattle. First year I remember following baseball was 1976, which is actually one year before the Mariners. So, uh, you know, the Mariners came into existence the next year, and I guess it was just a lifelong passion ever since. Or maybe it was my success playing t-ball in second grade. I don't know. One or the other. ESPN this week has uh, has been unveiling its Hall of 100 list all week. You were one of the voters. Tell me about your general approach and philosophy with your rankings. Yeah, you know, it was just a fun list. A bunch of guys voted, Jason Stark, Buster Olney, you know, guys like that. A lot of our editors from online and the magazine. Um, So it was a pretty informed crowd who voted on this. A lot of guys with kind of a sabermetric vent. So when you kind of see the rankings, if you're into, you know, war and wins above replacement, um, there probably won't be a lot of surprises on the list as opposed to if you sort of pulled a more general audience. But um, no, the way, you know, we were told when we voted, factor in only what the player did on the field. So whether he uh, used PEDs or not, we weren't supposed to factor that in. You know, look at the numbers and the accomplishments and that's it. Uh, you know, so we had a big pool of players to vote from and we, we gave them a grade 100. We were allowed to give one player a 100 and then you voted in increments, um, from there, 95 or 90, 85, all the way down to zero based on, you know, your standard of excellence. So, um, that's kind of how the process worked. Um, Barry Bonds was my number one guy. I gave him my 100, so that was uh, somewhat controversial. Well, we're going to talk about Barry Bonds and PEDs. You mentioned that. We're going to talk about that a little later. But before we get into specific rankings with the Hall of 100, I want to ask you about, as a baseball community, how we view players who played in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I personally think we overvalue them. People seem to just take all of their numbers at face value. I think that's a mistake. I love numbers and I love baseball statistics. I always have. I know you do too. But to me, it's ridiculous when you look at the career leaders in just about every category and see the top 20 flooded with players who played before the Great Depression. Do we really believe that every all-time great baseball player just happened to be born in the late 19th century? No, I agree. And that's we did a chat earlier today on, on ESPN, and that topic came up. And, you know, I throw out my argument. Some people believe it. Some people don't. An example I gave, if you go to the, the baseballreference.com leaderboards, career war, um, I think it was 11 of the top 16 players were born in the 1800s. Um, so I threw it out to the readers, like, do we really think 11 of the best 16 players ever were born? more than 100 years ago, it's just kind of silly. You know, we don't view uh, NFL players or NBA players, you know, in that kind of a light. But we stick to that in baseball. So, yeah, personally, I have kind of a timeline adjustment that I do, kind of what you're saying. But the game has improved through the years. It's harder to be better than your peers than it was 100 years ago, and you should adjust for that, even if those don't show up in – you know, a statistic like war. Now, looking at how everybody else voted on this panel, it was a mixed bag. Um, You know, there were some people who I don't think factored that in at all and, you know, gave Cy Young and Walter Johnson their their best scores and others who even graded more severely than I did. So, but it's like you said, it's a mixed bag. Some people don't factor that in. Some people do. Why does baseball hold on to that so much? And you're right. Other sports don't do that. Basketball writers don't claim that George Mikan was better than Shaq or that Cousy was better than Steve Nash. Football writers aren't ranking Sammy Baugh ahead of Joe Montana. But everyone still does this in baseball. I don't know. It's I have those discussions with my colleagues all the time, and I don't want to just. It seems sort of trite just to say, "Oh, it's this romantic ideal uh, with baseball." And maybe that's part of it. Maybe it's the numbers. You know, in essence, the numbers from you know 1903 are still recognizable today uh, to a certain extent. Um, 
So maybe that's why. I don't know if it, it – it's hard to say. It, maybe it's just because at one point baseball was the number one pastime in the country, and that that has been passed down from generation to generation. And whether your father or your grandfather said Babe Ruth was the best player I ever saw or Ty Cobb, and we still believe those things. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't really have a good answer. It's actually one of the things that I like about the Hall of 100 list. Modern players are fairly represented. Uh, with any list, there's obviously people that are too high or too low. And, you know, that's part of the reason why people do lists is to create debate and everything else. But I feel in general, modern players are fairly represented. When you look at someone like Cap Anson, obviously his stats weren't taken completely at face value or he would be right. ranked higher. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I mean, I think Cy Young, for example, is second on the uh, the all-time baseball reference uh, list. You know, he ended up 17th on our list. I mean, I could debate maybe that's even still high, still too high for him. But, you know, compared to most lists of this nature that you see, I think it was a little little better um, skewed towards the modern players, which, and I, I'm on the same page as you. I think that's a good thing. And, you know, as time goes on, I think we'll slowly see more lists along this nature and things evolve and we'll kind of realize oh, yeah, Cy Young played a different game than Roger Clemens or Craig Maddox. That's right. And in this uh, Cap Anson going even further back, you mentioned in the ESPN magazine, the Hall of Fame issue that has the whole Hall of 100 list. You know, Cap Anson played in a time where there were only 37 states. <laughs> Pitchers threw underhand. Batters could call for a ball high or low, a rule that was not abolished until 1887. I mean, can you imagine if Pujols could do that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we weren't around then. I don't know if that was a rule that was actually followed or not. It was in the rule book, whether that was uh, a practice. I don't think we really know. But, yeah, that was that was the rule. You could call for a high or low pitch. Um, I mean, to me, modern baseball, you want to argue when modern baseball began. The earliest or the latest, you could say, is 18, what, 93, when they moved the pitcher's mound to the current distance, you know. So trying to evaluate guys from the 1880s when they – you know, the field wasn't even the same dimension. So, and that's when Cap Anson had the, you know, majority of his career. So, you know, if you want to start 1893, I'm okay with that. I, even the, the guys from the 1880s, it's a little ridiculous to put them on the same level. I uh, I went to the Baseball Hall of Fame Museum this uh, summer with my wife, and one of my favorite things there, there was an old classified ad. I think the Washington Senators in the early 1900s placed a classified ad in the newspaper looking for a first baseman. <laughs> not only is that absurd, at the end of the ad, it said Irish need not apply. Yeah, yeah. This is the league that Hannes Wagner played in. Well, and that's, you know, no matter the sport, Maybe this even applies in other fields. You know, if you're an early innovator, you have a huge advantage over your peers. Um, so, I mean, why does Apple have a big advantage in the mobile phone market? Well, they were the first ones to come out with that kind of phone. Um, is their product better? I don't know. Why? You know, Babe Ruth's advantage. He was one of the first guys to swing hard every single pitch. You know, it was. Yes, he dominated over his peers, but it wasn't too much longer until we saw guys like Rogers Hornsby and Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox putting up huge home run numbers as well. Ruth was just the first one to do it, and that, you know, you hear all those stats, oh, he had more home runs than every, any other team. Well, he had that advantage. He was the innovator. To his credit, he was the innovator. But we have to factor those kinds of things in, I think, when we evaluate players. Well, let's talk about some of the rankings themselves. Babe Ruth did end up number one. You had Bonds number one overall. Tell me why you put Bonds number one. Well, uh, maybe a little bit to be contrarian. There's a, a couple other. <laughs> That's an honest answer. <laughs> there were a couple other people who had him uh, number one, but uh, you know, my take. Look, the numbers again. We weren't factoring in PED use, so. Uh, his numbers are phenomenal. You know, they speak for themselves, the home runs, the on-base percentage, the defense. Yeah, he couldn't throw, but, uh, you know, maybe the, the best fielding left fielder of all time. And, of course, he, he was a great base runner. So, to me, uh, that gave him the edge over Babe Ruth, especially when I do factor in, well, it was 
tougher playing in the 1990s and the 2000s than it was in the 1920s. The game is better. I mean, I cite this a lot. If you look up the, you know, the heights of the pitchers Babe Ruth faced, most guys he he was hitting against were under six feet tall. You know, these guys weren't throwing 98 miles an hour. We know that they just weren't. So the game, the game is better. It's tougher and it's harder to excel. So they were also mostly right-handed. Yeah, yeah. There's another good, a good example. Um, you know, he wasn't facing loogies and closers throwing 100 miles an hour out of the bullpen. So it doesn't mean Babe Ruth, if he went into a time capsule and was playing in 2004, wouldn't have put up monster numbers. But uh, just the, I, I, like we you said early in the podcast, I factor in the caliber of competition, and Bonds' competition was tougher. How did your uh, top ten play out? Well, like I said, we didn't really rank them. We just gave uh, the numbers. So Bonds was my 100, and then the scale was kind of like 80 to 100 was – you know, a surefire Hall of Famer. So I'm going through here. I had one, two, three. I had about 15 guys at a 95. I'm probably pretty generous. You know, Ruth, Mays, Ted Williams, Hank Aaron, all those all those guys that were near the top of of the ultimate final rankings. You know, so you could give only one 100 ranking, but the rest of the rankings you could give as many as you wanted. Exactly. So if somebody wanted to give one 100 and, you know, 395s, they could do that. You know? <laughs> um, if, you, if you're a big hall guy, you could, have, uh, you could have done whatever you wanted to do. But, yeah, so that was sort of the general system. 80 to 100 was a Hall of Famer. Then you went down from there. I tried to scale it where I gave – I probably put way too much time and thought into it, you know, where I gave an equal number of 95s and 90s. I sort of figured it was um, – not so much gradient on a scale, uh, you know, as a, on a bell curve is is gradient where everybody, every number deserved the same number of players. And then I just went from there. So who were your 95s? Ruth, Mays? Yeah, if I go down, Ruth, Mays, Ted Williams, Hank Aaron, Ty Cobb, Roger Clemens, Musial, Mantle, Honus Wagner, Lou Gehrig, Walter Johnson, uh, Greg Maddox. Ricky Henderson, Mike Schmidt, A-Rod, Pujols, Joe Morgan, Randy Johnson, Tom Seaver. That all sounds perfectly yeah. reasonable right there. I gave some of the old guys a good screen. I gave Cy Young a 90. I downgraded him a little bit. What players on the actual list do you think got overrated the most? Well, that's a good question. Um, you can't really argue with with you know, too much of the top 20. Um, I know it came up in the chat. Joe Morgan was 20th. Obviously, he's a guy, as you know, that sabermetric people love. I was surprised he ended up that high um, just because he doesn't have a lot of big numbers in some of those categories people like, you know, uh, batting average and 3,000 hits and the like. Um, So I was glad to see him um, rate that high. A lot of the readers in the chat thought he was a little high. I think that's a good place for him, although 21 – Joe DiMaggio seemed a little high. Yeah, DiMaggio, you know, I don't know how you... DiMaggio is a tough one for me. Um, I Deep down, I just kind of feel he's overrated. And I know he missed, you know, a few years in World War II. And there's probably few players more respected in their own time, right, than DiMaggio. At the same time, it's kind of understandable. You know, when did people pay attention to baseball most back well the world series that was the only time you either could hear them on the radio or later on tv well dimaggio was in it every year he was in the world series every year almost so it was natural then that people would sort of put a higher value on him you know as opposed to ted williams at the time um and now we look back in retrospect and we kind of oh he wasn't really quite the hitter ted williams was um and he retired young. You know, that has nothing to do with his, his military service. He was pretty young when he retired and had some injuries at the end. So People love that, though, because when someone <laughs> retires young and they're on top of their game, people fantasize about sure. what could have been. That's a, it's the Koufax thing, too. Yeah, I mean, Koufax, you know, he, where did he end up? 44 on our list. And, you know, Jason Stark talked about, talked about him a lot in our chat. Jason, uh, you know, has taken the stand that Koufax is overrated, um, which 
it's interesting. You will, you cannot convince somebody who grew up in the 1960s that Koufax is overrated. Um, and you can run out all the numbers that, well, he did retire young. He, he only had three monster season. His first four or five years, he wasn't very good. You know, Dodger Stadium was this great pitcher's park. You, you just you can't tell people of a certain generation that that's the case with him. But I, I'm with Jason. I think he is overrated. Well, it's interesting because I think Kofex is deserving to be in the Hall of Fame. I I, uh, I have no problem with him being there. And it's interesting when you think about what the Hall of Fame is, what any Hall of Fame is, it's finding the combination, the right combination of career and peak value. Yep. And there's no question that for a four-year stretch, Kofex was the best pitcher in the league. And not just the best pitcher in the league, he was doing incredible things. He was, absolutely. And those things carried over into the postseason, too, which were when he was dominant, and that, I think, helps his case, too. That helps, like, the mythology with Kofex. But it is finding that career and peak value. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's what makes the Hall of Fame discussions so fun and interesting. I don't think – I think we're on the same page. You don't ever want to get to a point where, all right, here's the line, and he's in or out. Here's the statistical line. He has so many, right. you know, career wins above replacement or what have you and you put them in or out. And unfortunately, there's a lot of the writers who sort of are anti-stat head. Um, I think they think that's sort of what the stat head community wants or believes. And I don't think that's generally the case, you know, and maybe those of us who like the numbers uh, cite things like wins above replacement too much. But you're right. It's, you know, I think peak value gets underplayed, you know, um, it's funny, if you look at the – sorry, I'll ramble on here. If you look at the Go history ahead. of the Hall of Fame voting, I think there used to be more value placed on peak seasons. Um, you know, and I wrote about Carl Hubble the other day, a guy who for five or six years was absolutely phenomenal, won two MVP awards. And I kind of – he finished out of our top – out of our top 125. And I was kind of, wow, when I was a kid, you know, he was like this sort of mythical – name from 40 years ago and now people have forgotten about him it's because he had that peak value and that's what we used to pay more attention to at some point that changed and it, i don't know if it's just the emphasis on the 300 hits and 3000 uh, or 300 wins and 3000 hits which are more career standards than than peak standards and and I think that's sort of hurt how we view some players. I agree. And look, I love numbers and I love the sabermetric numbers. I named the podcast replacement level, right. obviously. I you knew something about uh, wins above replacement. <laughs> I don't think anyone is saying that there should be a hard line. If you get 60 or over, you should be in or below, you should not, because that's obviously not what they're saying. I just think what we're saying as a whole to the voting members is let's go beyond the sniff test. Right. Truly, all the statistical information you need at this point is one click away. Well, and that's what um, I think, I don't know if sad's the right word, but discouraging on how some of the voters vote, you know, and that the, the magazine issue that you mentioned, they surveyed some voters and, you know, they quoted you know, some anonymous writer just saying, I get my ballot, I spend five seconds, in or out, you know. Yeah, I saw and that and thought, oh, I winced, it was terrible. And I'm sure there's, what percentage of voters do that? I don't know, I've talked to a lot of voters through the years um and that's a high a certain percentage do it exactly that way and maybe you know and look again we don't want to be a hall of numbers and i think fame should be a, a factor to to a small extent um but for the most part it really is about putting the best players in and you know that's where you got to pay attention to the numbers or at least look at them and study them a little the sniff test is one of those things that for the all-time greats, for, you know, when you have Ted Williams or Willie Mays, the sniff test works just fine. Sure. And it works on the bottom end of that, too. For Vinny Castilla, it's the in-between. It's the yeah. Tim Raines and Tony Gwynn. Okay, Gwynn's in, but why isn't Raines? It's one of those sure. things where really, that, that's where it really requires more information. Well, it's one of, like, there's a guy this year, Kenny Lofton. Who... I love Lofton. I just wrote a Hall of Fame case for him. Yeah, and it's and he's one of those guys who, when you kind of really dig into the numbers, you're like, he's a lot better than we thought. But he doesn't come close to the sniff test. I mean, he'll probably get less than five percent of the vote and fall off the ballot this year. Yep. You know, um, he'll join Lou Whitaker as the best players to fall off the ballot the first yeah, year. Yeah, but it's it's hard. How do you convince you know sort of the the old 
school sports writer that, you know, Kenny Lofton's compared with Tony Gwynn and they had similar value. You just, you just can't convince them of that because the sniff test <laughs> between the two are so different that they just think you're a fool for even trying to, to argue, you know, make that argument. And uh, that's sort of one of the, you know, Lofton is a, an example of a guy that sort of, I think, hurts the numbers guys to a certain extent, you know, when they make that argument and the writers just, you know, they're almost offended. And I agree. Lofton actually compares very favorably to Richie Ashburn, who the writers themselves didn't put in. But I don't think anyone looks at Richie Ashburn at this point and say, oh, there's an egregious error that he's in the Hall of Fame. No. Well, that, look, that's a great point, too. You know, uh, Joel Posnanski wrote a good blog the other day where he sort of divided the Hall of Fame into these different levels. and uh, But essentially, there are two different Hall of Fames. There's the one, you know, that the writers vote on, and that's primarily the obvious guys. Um, the except, You know, Jim Rice, Bruce Sitter being sort of the exception. And then there's everybody else. So what exactly, that's where I think the general public and the writers and sort of miss construe what the hall of fame is um for the writers maybe it's just because you have so many people voting it's a small hall but in reality it's a pretty big hall um and, and it's a fascinating thing we're getting off yeah. subject a little bit here <laughs> but it's a fascinating thing because i thought I've, I've been thinking a lot about this lately and some of the the people that the veterans committee have put in are very deserving like ron santo mm -hmm. but they have made a lot of mistakes when you look at yeah. some of the the people at the bottom especially from the 20s and the 10 you know tommy mccarthy it's just right. he, I mean, that's the equivalent of basically putting Tom Bernanski or Trot Nixon in the Hall of Fame. So some of the mistakes are more severe, but here's, here's what I really think. I think that every writer, every journalist, no matter what sport you're covering, has at one point had to face an athlete who said to them, why should we take you seriously if you've never played the game? And the answer, of course, is because writing is a different skill from playing the game. <laughs> It's two very different things. Now, we're not arguing what's the more impressive skill. Obviously, playing shortstop or shooting guard is more impressive than being able to write a column. More people can write a column than they can play shortstop. Evaluating talent is a different skill from writing as well, and it's a different skill from playing as well. Some writers are capable of evaluating talent. Some are not. Some players are capable of evaluating talent, and some are not. There is some overlap there. But I really think that part of the, part of the mess with the veterans committees, which there's been many of them over the years, is opportunity. If they were given the opportunity to put Willie Mays or Ted Williams in, obviously they would have. And never mind players of that caliber, if they were given the opportunity to put Reggie Jackson or Steve Carlton or George Brett in, they would put them in too. Imagine if everything was reversed and the Veterans Committee got the players first and the writers were left with the guy, <laughs> guys that were no longer in. The writers would want to participate too. I think it's an issue of participation as well as the ability to evaluate talent. It's a great point, Ross. And to a certain extent, that's sort of what we're seeing now. And I think what we're going to see this year when I predict only Jack Morris will make it in and if you think of, okay, throw out the steroid guys, that's, uh, we can get to that issue if you want to. That's a whole other issue. But the writers, yep. they don't want to vote nobody in. So in lieu of that, in lieu of not voting in the, the steroid guys, who are they left with? Well, they want to put somebody in. So Jack Morris, which is an, ob you know, an obvious bottom-of-the-barrel caliber Hall of Famer. You, know, you, can't, you can't intellectually defend voting for Jack Morris into the Hall of Fame over 15 other guys on the ballot. That's correct. You just can't do it, even if you want to put a huge amount of uh, value on his Game 7 performance from 1991. You just can't do it. But you, like you said, they want to participate in getting somebody in the Hall of Fame, and whoever, whichever player lucks out in a down year, one year it's Jim Rice, one year it's Bruce Suter, this year it's going to be Jack Morris. I actually don't think anyone's going to get in this year. I think the ballot is so crowded that no one's going to get in. I know the historical trends with someone with yeah. Morris where he is would indicate that he's getting in, and he might. He's the most likely to get in. I don't think any of the new guys on the ballot are going to get over 50%, and that includes Bonds and Clemens. Uh, I think we're going to have a year where I would personally vote for 14 people. I know you can only vote for 10. I think 14 are deserving, including Kenny Lofton, uh, and no one's going to get in. And next year, it gets even more crowded when Maddox, Frank Thomas, uh, Mike Musi and Tom Glavin come on. Now, we think that, that Maddox and Thomas will get in right away, but it's still coming to a point where, look at all the deserving people you have on the ballot. What are we accomplishing here by keeping all of them out? Oh, 
yeah, absolutely. It's just a it's a big hot mess right now. Um, no, you might be right about Morris in part. Um, you mentioned the history, like you said. Usually, once you get up to sixty percent, you're a lock, you know, to get in. Um, but there's also a trend that when huge names come on the ballot, the borderline guys see their percentages drop. Um, yep. But again, that's all complicated by all you know these steroid guys. But you're right, Morris could end up losing votes for for people who do vote for the steroid guys. Um, or the rumored, uh, the alleged steroid PED guys, uh, as is the case for some of these. Um, and their ballot, you're right, the ballot fills up. There's 10 spots. There's no room for Morris, maybe even if they had voted for him last year. That's a good point, yeah. Uh, it could be something if he falls just a little short. And next year, you're right, he has one more year, and then he's hurt by the fact that Maddox comes on, who nobody thinks did anything. Right. Jack Morris clearly isn't Greg Maddox, so that hurts him too. Here's the thing. Jack Morris was a very good pitcher. He pitched on good teams. He was durable and he was healthy. We've hit the point where saying someone isn't a Hall of Famer is insulting. You know, it's, it becomes an insult to people. We feel the need to insult people. Right. If, if a team drafted Jack Morris right now and got that same career, they would be doing backflips. They would be so excited to have Jack Morris in their farm system coming up. But that doesn't mean he's a Hall of Famer. Jack Morris... This is an example. We talked about the sniff test a little bit earlier. A few years ago, Burt Blylevin got in, and he was incredibly deserving. And Jack Morris is very close to getting in, and he falls significantly short. Both cases are just an example of the sniff test gone wrong. Right. Jack Morris has a reputation for being this gritty, gutty guy, and everybody remembers Game 7 where he went 10 innings. But his reputation doesn't actually live up to his numbers. Not his traditional numbers, and not his advanced numbers. Right. The thing with Burt Blylevin is, even if you ignore advanced metrics and you just look at innings pitched, ERA, and strikeouts, Blylevin's deserving. Blylevin is a deserving Hall of Famer just on his traditional numbers. He just didn't pass the sniff test. That's one of those things where it's like, if you need to look at the damage or how the sniff test goes wrong, just look at Jack Morris and Burt Blylevin. Well, and Blylevin's one of those guys, you know, his very best years came in the early 70s before I was a fan. But I've I've gone back and read some of the literature that was written at the time. And at the time, people just didn't realize how good Blylevin was, in part because the Twins were mediocre in those years and he, you know, was going 18 and 16 or whatever, when all they really cared about were wins. So it just got to the point where it was established that Burt Blylevin doesn't know how to win. They they wrote that stuff at the time. They, they mm. did believe that. So, of course, what happened is he ended up pitching for 10, 12 more years and was a pretty good pitcher most of those years, and suddenly, wow, he almost wins theater games, and like you said, all these innings and strikeouts. But the belief on what kind of pitcher Burt Blylevin was had been established. And you know, it, it obviously he eventually overcame this and rightfully so got in the Hall of Fame. And Morris, as you said, it's just the opposite. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, I was a fan in the 80s. I don't know how old you are, if you were a fan then. Yep. Um, he sort of had that reputation at the time, in part because he had, you know, a couple 20-win seasons. But when you look at the ERAs, they were never that impressive. I mean, he was in the top 10 in his league a few times, but... You know, a few times doesn't make you an automatic Hall of Famer. And you're right. Historically speaking, the writers would never elect a guy with a 3.90 ERA. They wouldn't even consider him. But here they are. Morris is a lot closer to Dennis Martinez, David Wells, Jamie Moyer, that group of pitchers, Kenny Rogers, all very good pitchers. But none of them are Hall of Famers. The other, David Wells is going to appear for the first time this year. He'll fall right off. Those other guys didn't get any consideration either, and nor should they. Jack Morris is in that group, but for some reason he's he's on the cusp of getting right in. No, and I, I, you feel bad, I, you know, because some of the things that you know, some very well-known writers, you know, write about Morris, acting like it's you know degrading and insulting <laughs> to the Hall of Fame if he gets elected. Like I, I don't want to go that far. There's there's far worse players than Jack Morris in the Hall of Fame. And, um, you know, look, in my book, yeah, he deserved extra credit. He won two games in the 84 World Series. He did have the great Game 7. That's that's extra credit, you know, for a borderline guy. But you really got to work 
to make uh, Morris a borderline guy, you know. But I yeah, agree. Compared, you're right. Compared to David Wells, pretty it's similar. It's interesting. And Wells will not, like you said, he won't sniff the 5%. What I don't understand, it's like, okay, it's one thing if you're voting for Morris and that's your threshold. If that's if you vote for the people who are equivalent or better, that's fine. But what I don't understand is that Morris is going to get roughly 70% of the vote this year. Schilling, I think, will come in around 35%. So twice as many people are going to vote for Morris than Schilling. What are they possibly looking at to make that decision? I don't know. And I think some of it is it is a rebuttal against the stat heads. But that's not that doesn't explain everything. You know, so okay. Then you think, well, what's some of the other? Where are some of the other votes coming from? All right, there are a lot of baseball writers, um, you know, who were active beat writers in the '80s, and they remember Morris had that reputation. You know, um, so they go on that, and they go by the fact that Tom Kelly or Sparky Anderson would say, "This is my guy. This is he's a number one starter." Um, then there's a certain percentage who are like, oh, all right, this is an indictment of the steroid here. I'm not voting for those guys, so I'm going to vote for Jack Morris. You know, I guess you add enough of those groups together, and suddenly he's close to 75%. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough if it's becoming an FU vote. That's a problem. If it's you becoming know, a vote to, uh, you know, hey, I don't know if he's really in or not, but uh, the stat guys are a pain in the ass, which sometimes they can be. If that's yeah. if that's the case, hey. It's interesting, too. I, I know last year I couldn't tell you who or which website did it, and they tried to track all the Hall of Fame votes that were made public. And I think they got about 200 of them out of the 500-and-something voters, and you see these votes really break down to a generational thing. If you know who who the various writers are, anybody who's older of a certain age, none of them vote for any of the suspected PED users. Then there's the guys who are voting for, you know, Jack Morris or Dale Murphy. Like, Oh wait, yeah, he started covering baseball in the eighties and the younger generation, you know, vote for the PED users and they're going to, pay more attention to the the more sabermetric stats. It's a, it's a total generation thing, and that's why, you know, the Hall of Fame, it'll evolve. It's a slow process, but, you know, I think eventually the PED guys and whatnot will get in. It's just going to take a lot of years. Well, I guess let's move over to there. I don't, I don't know if they're – they're going to get in. I don't think that there's enough, um, you know, as much as people are like, oh, look at all the young people that be keep becoming members. The problem with the voting process is that there's only changes to the voters by addition. There's no accountability with how people vote. There's no, hey, you voted for Vinny Castillo. We don't want you voting anymore. Right. No one says, hey, you didn't vote for Mike Schmidt. We don't want you voting anymore. So there's no accountability with the voters. When voters retire from their, from their newspaper organizations, they still vote. So they have a vote until they die. I just don't see them getting in with this group of people. Yeah. Now, I, I, yeah, if, okay, Clemens and Bonds are on. They got 15 years. Yeah, you're right. The the, the process um, of weeding out the old timers, we'll call it. Um, yeah, you're right. There's it's going to take a long time. You might be right. Um, you know, will there be a philosophical mindset change? I don't know. It, it, you read what people write, and they've all dug their heels pretty deep into the sand. Um, but then you think of a guy like Bagwell, who, of course, everybody. Um, has taken a stand on, you know, oh, they didn't vote for him because they think he used. Well, he got, I think he got, what, 52% of the vote, something like that last year, which by historical standards is pretty high for a guy in his second year on the ballot, you know, the non-Willie Mays type of player. So actually Bagwell, his trend would be he'll get in, you know, because if you're at 50% that early in your, your tenure on the ballot, you get in. So there's a suspected PED guy who history suggests will get in. You know, Bonds and Clemens, you know, Sosa, McGuire, those are different cases, I guess. 
Yeah, it's one of those things. I don't think anyone's getting in this year. I think next year we'll just see Maddox and Frank Thomas. I think Frank Thomas, even though he was a slugger, he was the only player who cooperated with the Mitchell Report. He voluntarily testified in front of Congress. I think that he was trying to be an early whistleblower. Uh, People weren't really listening, but I think Thomas will get in as well. I would disagree. I don't think Thomas gets in the first year. What else do voters not like? They don't like DHs, although they, they voted in Molitor. But, uh, you know, my man Edgar doesn't have a lot of support. Uh, I'd, vote for, I'd, I'd vote for Edgar if it's any consolation. I don't have a vote, but I, I certainly <laughs> think he's deserving. And Thomas, I mean, I think people literally will say, oh, 521 home runs. He played in the steroid era. That's not all that great. So I think he'll get in in year two or three, but I think he falls a little short. And I've always said the only thing – look, the whole problem is – and people have written this. Buster Olney wrote this a couple of weeks ago. Until the Hall of Fame steps in and gives the voters direction, they allow this this split or this mess to happen. Well, if it happens or this year nobody gets voted in and we're stuck going to a ceremony uh, inducting three dead people, the Hall of Fame doesn't want that either. No. Because even though it's a nonprofit institution, they want people going there. They want crowds. They want the the big turnout on induction day. And if there's nobody to cheer for, maybe they finally start considering and saying, "All right, voters, you got to consider voting for the steroid guys." Or even, I mean, it's a bigger mess if they say don't vote for them or whatever. But they're on the ballot. You know, Barry Bonds is at Giants games during the World Series, in and out of the clubhouse. He hasn't been barred from baseball. Bud Selig hasn't said anything, so I don't know. I don't quite get it, but that's my... (laughs) How do you think the Hall of Fame has handled the issue? My knowledge is they haven't made any public statement on suspected PED users. Um, So... I mean, look, my take is, you know, you've been there. It's a a museum. It's a great museum in a, you know, cute little town, you know, by a nice lake. Um, It's their museum. It's not the baseball writer's museum. So many writers disagree with that. I know they do, you know, and I think we're going to have a column coming up on the site on Friday from Howard Bryant, who is going to disagree with sort of my philosophy and that the writers do have the right to decide. I mean, my take is it's not the Baseball Writers of Association Hall of Fame. It's the Baseball Hall of Fame. So why the Hall of Fame has allowed the writers to make decisions on this Um, I don't quite understand why they would want that Um, just because the writers have been the voting block for all these years. um, doesn't mean it can't be changed. I mean, why can't Vince, as I always write, why can't Vince Scully vote for the Hall of Fame or Bill James? I mean, it's ridiculous. Joe Torrey, whoever. Yeah, John Um, Thorne. He's the the official historian of Major League Baseball. He doesn't vote. It's absurd. And, you know, I've, I've run into people who have votes who haven't covered baseball in years and not to uh, <laughs> rip these guys, but their knowledge of baseball, frankly, is it's kind of embarrassing that some of these people have Hall of Fame votes. How would you change the voting process? If you were in charge of the voting process, would you keep it a vote? Would you go by committee? What kind of things would you do differently? Yeah, I wrote something a few weeks ago suggesting Maybe it is time to to form some kind of some sort of committee. I think what I suggest is let sort of maybe if we want to keep the writers in this process, well, maybe round one they're sort of a cutoff, and the ten highest the, the ten players with the highest percentage of votes move on to a special committee. And the committee elects a certain number. You know, I think the NFL, for example, elects at least four every year. Now, granted, they have more players. That way, you're guaranteed. You know, whatever you set it at, three players minimum every year get in. No, and then people would say, well, you know, the NFL committee is full of, you know, political agendas and that kind of stuff. But at least if you have the right committee and you put, you know, Bill James and and 
Vince Scully, put a fan, you know, run a nationwide contest, let a fan be on it who shows a certain amount of knowledge, whatever. Um, I think that's a better process than 575 writers of varying degree of baseball knowledge voting. Yeah, I agree. I think the, you know, a lot of people have talked about expanding the ballot and uh, making people vote for however many people they want. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do, especially considering how many deserving people are on the ballot now. But I think what you would still have in that case is if you allowed people to vote for 15 people, they would still be voting for Dale Murphy and Don Mattingly and Lee Smith and Jack Morris. It still would be a big cluster and um, it would the votes would not be distributed evenly. I think the idea of sort of nominating players and then having a different group of people saying we're putting in four people this year, that would also clean up the ballot very quickly. These four are getting in this year. Next year, we're going to put in five and that number can rotate. Maybe you look at the ballot one year and say, we're putting in one guy this year. That number doesn't have to be hard every year. I think some sort of committee should be overseeing it or I think there should be a director of player admissions, someone that holds voters accountable, someone that says, hey, you didn't vote for Mike Schmidt or Cal Ripken. We don't want you voting. Uh, you did vote for Vinny Castilla, though, so we don't want you voting either. I, I just think there needs to be someone who holds the voters accountable. I think all the votes should be made public. I think they should be accompanied by a, a written explanation as to why they're making the their vote either for or against a player. It doesn't have to be a full biography of a player, just a simple what numbers did you look at, who amongst his contemporaries did you compare him to, and what Hall of Famers did you compare him to. I think just doing that, publishing it on the website, would go a long way. No, I, I totally agree. And I think it's it's also imperative that the Hall of Fame sort of explain what it is, you know, because the writers have created this narrow view of the Hall of Fame. You know, it's a very small, exclusive club. Well, we all know Willie Mays and Hank Aaron were great players. We don't need writers to tell us that. It's that second level where it gets interesting and fun. Um, And maybe you'll, you'll never get beyond that split of those who believe it's a small hall or a big hall. Um, but like, like I said earlier, the fact is the hall of fame is not just Willie Mays and Hank Aaron. It's, you know, that went and out no the door hall of decades is. ago. Right. So, right. And no hall of fame is the no, basketball no. hall of fame has Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, uh, Will Chamberlain, obviously Shaq will go in, but it also has, uh, you know, David Robinson who wasn't as good as Bill Russell, but David Robinson's in the hall of fame. Well, and yes, or Dennis Rodman. I mean, right. he got some. He was a good. Re- he averaged like six points a game in his career. You know, he's not as good as Charles Barkley or Carl Malone, who right. were his contemporaries. But he is in. There is no such thing as a small small Hall of Fame with any sport. Right, and I would argue the Hall of Fame. It's more fun as an institution if you allow a few more people in. I agree. In my book, and which is why if Jack Morris gets in, I'm not going to cry it's not going to ruin the hall of fame you know he'll be far from the worst player in it um it's just there's better candidates this year that's right there are currently uh with deacon white getting in there are 209 players in the hall of fame because of their major league playing career i went through this exercise recently where i tried to do my hall of fame how many guys would i put in and i came up with about 180 so i do think the hall of fame is slightly too big but i think that the 180 for me it included people like kenny lofton and keith hernandez um, which i think the writers would look at and be like there's no way those guys are hall of famers but i i think that there are tiers i don't think the hall necessarily has to acknowledge that i think it may diminish the accomplishment to someone if you say congratulations you're a Hall of Famer, well, but your fourth, no, fourth they don't tier. No, that. I agree. Yeah, I don't think they need to do that, but I think that, that we just need to realize that's what the Hall of Fame is. That's what every Hall of Fame is. The Hall of Fame is for Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox. It's also for Willie McCovey and Harmon Killebrew, and I think it's also for Keith Hernandez. Well, and the other, the other line that the Hall itself does have to straddle is when they have the annual ceremony and a lot of the, the current Hall of Famers come back, is the fear that if you start electing the Bonds and Clemens, those guys won't show up. I think that's legitimate. I think it's that's totally a real fear. I, I mean, I had a Hall of Famer tell me, this is regarding P. Rose, um, a, guy, a player who was in the Hall of Fame, told me years ago, we can't ever put Pete Rose in because, you know, Bob Feller and all those guys from that generation won't come. And the Hall of Fame doesn't want that. So, so from the Hall's perspective, that's a legitimate fear, you know, that you, you induct Barry Bonds and, you know, he's there giving a speech and there's three guys sitting behind him. So I think it's also a fear that Bonds and Clemens 
won't show up regularly themselves. I think those guys want to be in, but I don't. neither one of them strike me as the type to be the guy at Cooperstown every year. That's an interesting point. Yeah, that, that's, actually, that, that's an interesting point. And another interesting point, uh, Tim Kuhn, who uh, is the most underrated sports writer in the country, in my opinion, um, writes for .com and ESPN Magazine. He, had a, he has a column and a little essay in, in this issue of, of the magazine and about bonds, and he writes something new to the end. Tim doesn't take Tim didn't really take a side on whether Bond should be in or out, but he wrote, "If you put him in, does that justify what Bonds did?" And, and I know some writers have probably written that, but he he just he put it perfectly, and I think that's a fair way to to phrase it now in my opinion um i i would still vote for him you know it's still a product of the era but i can sort of see the hall of fame saying if we put these guys in does it justify you know this this controversial issue here's the thing here's how i feel about that i think that legacy the concept of legacy is a complicated thing we want people who are good to be all good yeah. And we want people who are bad to be all bad. But I think in the last year, point. we've learned that legacy is complicated. We can look to the most obvious case of Joe Paterno. Yeah. For many people, Joe Paterno is one of the great football coaches of all time. He gave to charity. He's a teacher. He's a supporter of football. He helped educate kids and make them better men. He also enabled a child molester. Enabled might be harsh. He at least overlooked. Right. There's a good side to Paterno, and there's a bad side. It's not like Sandusky, whose bad side completely overrides any good he may have accomplished in his life. We will always remember Sandusky as a bad guy. There's no going back from that. With Paterno, it's a little more complicated, because legacy is a complicated thing when someone who had spent 70 years apparently doing good things doesn't. Doesn't anymore. And I think with Barry Bonds, his legacy will always be connected to steroids. We have no idea how much PEDs actually increased his performance. I think they did increase his performance, but to what degree, we'll never know. If Barry Bonds is in the Hall of Fame or not, whether he is in, whether Clemens gets in, he will always, they will always be associated with steroids. In the eyes of writers, fans, when you think of Barry Bonds, the first thing you will think of is steroids. That legacy is not changing whether he's in the Hall of Fame or not. It's a terrific point, Ross. And if you, you know, if you, you if you go back and read, you know, Game of Shadows and sort of try to decipher the reasons, you know, Bonds first started taking PEDs, it kind of came down to well, he saw McGuire and Sosa going off, and deep down in his heart of hearts, he knew he was the better player. And, and that's kind of the, the sad thing about his case in particular is. Okay, nobody liked him. He's hated and reviled before all this happened. But he still would have gone down with this legacy as one of the great players of all time. Yep. But in his, his desire to prove he was the greatest player, his legacy now is, as you say, permanently tarnished. Uh, and that's sort of what does make his case sad, as what happened with Penn State, you know, in Paterno, a, a sad situation. And it's weird how we view legacy. Michael Silverman yeah. came on. He was the last guest on the podcast, and he talked about how everyone's just sort of lumped together. There's no distinction made for people that used their whole career or if someone just used once. The assumption is if you used, if you, used you used. You're all in the same tub. But we don't do that with recreational drugs. We understand that there's a difference between someone who's an addict or someone that smokes weed every day versus someone who smokes weed twice a year. They're at a party and they smoke marijuana twice a year. I think we view them differently from someone who smokes every day. But with PEDs, we just throw them all in. Someone tests positive once, uh, someone used for a year, we assume they use their whole career. We assume that they've used every day of their life. And I don't think that's fair either. No, no, I totally agree. And, and you know, it, it gets to the other more problematic layer of people who, well, Mike Piazza, I think he used, you know, I might even have people who told me he used, yet, you know, never tested positive, wasn't in the Mitchell report, and so on. That's a pretty, that's a pretty harsh way to view somebody when we don't 
have any evidence. I agree. Um, you know, there's just so many different layers. Then you get into Palmero and Manny, who later tested positive. That's a whole another discussion, I think. Um, it's just it's kind of sad because I love the Hall of Fame. I've been there four or five times. Um, I love baseball history. I love the debates, but to a certain extent, it's just going to grow so tiresome, you know, over these these next few years. And it's too bad because it takes a lot of fun away from something that's just be a fun topic for for baseball fans to talk about. I agree. And in the end, it's bad for baseball. It's bad for the Hall of Fame. I've talked about this many times. I've written this on my website that when you ignore a generation of players, you ignore a generation of fans. There's no way around that. The issue of performance-enhancing drugs is real. These guys were using performance-enhancing drugs. Um, I think we can question how much the the legality of them was was enforced or how much baseball was enforcing any punishments against them, which they weren't. But they were using drugs, which I think is you know worth noting. I'd rather the Hall of Fame just do both. I'd rather they acknowledge Bonds' accomplishment as a baseball player and also acknowledge that he was at least a part of a federal investigation for his alleged use of steroids. Sure. There, right. There's an easy – there's pretty easy ways to get around – sort of enshrining him then thus justifying his actions. You know, it doesn't have to be what happens. I mean, Bill James um, had an interesting blog on his website the other day where he drew this analogy of, you know, if a three-year-old kid does something bad and you punished him six hours later, it doesn't work because the kid doesn't understand what you're punishing him for. And he was making the point that this is what we're doing now with with these guys. You know, they weren't punished at the time. So how can you punish them years and years after what happened? And And even someone like Manny was punished at the time. Yeah. But to me, the idea that sports writers are punishing players appalls me. It really bothers me, the idea that writers are judging morality and see fit to punish a player. I don't know how you feel about Pete Rose or Joe Jackson, whether or not they should be in. At least the punishment is coming from the right place. Major League Baseball said, we don't want these guys a part of our game. And the Hall of Fame accepts that policy. Anyone that's blacklisted by Major League Baseball is not eligible for the Hall of Fame. Now, you can agree or disagree with that policy, but at least the punishment is coming from the right place. It's coming from Major League Baseball. Even if the Hall of Fame said, we don't think they should be in, we're not going to put Bonds or Clemens or any of these guys on our ballot going forward, I would disagree with that decision, but it's their museum. At least they would be making a decision. To have the idea of having writers judging morality or character bothers me to no end. And if we need a reason as to why, let's look no further than to Bill Conlon. Yeah, yeah, no, that's you're right. That's a sad, a sad case. What happened there? Is he still voting? By the way, I don't know. That's a question for for Jack O'Connell, the uh, secretary of the BBWAA, on whether he has rescinded Bill Conlon's ballot. Good question. Um, I don't know. It's it's really like I said earlier. It's it's a generational thing. I guess I don't, and I'm not that young, but <laughs> I don't quite grasp why a certain generation is so appalled at at this, you know, and they're, they're, they're really angry about, about it. And I don't quite know why, you know, when it's, I don't think it's a cop out by saying it's just, it was a product of the environment of baseball at that time, you know, not to put these on the same level, but just like segregation was a product of, you know, pre Jackie Robinson. It was part of the game. And, right. And gambling was a big part of the game at and, one point. Well, and, yeah. There's, we all know Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker and others were linked to throwing games. Um, yep. And obviously it was much worse than, you know, a few years before that. So yeah, exactly. So I just don't, I just, I don't understand. And, they're angry about it. And now the other side is getting angry at them. And then it's now it's, you know, just nasty out there. Do you see an ethical difference between the players of the 90s who used steroids and the players of the 50s who used amphetamines? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, a little bit, I guess I'd have to say yes in the fact that I don't know if the guys in the 50s and the 60s would look 
at what they were doing as something that was breaking the law. You know, um, I don't even know when amphetamines became a banned uh, drug. I don't think it was until the early 70s. Um, Where if you were taking steroids in the 90s, you kind of knew you were doing something a little under the table. So I think you could make that argument, you know, that one was maybe – you'd have to talk to a college ethics professor and get their take. That one was maybe ethically a little more immoral. But, again, I still fall back on – it was part of the game. Amphetamines were part of the game for generations. Steroids were part of the game for a generation. Players are going to do everything they can to win. You know, no matter uh, what tools are available to them. So, before we wrap it up, I'll go through this ballot real quick. You can just give me a yes or no whether you think the player is hallworthy, whether you would vote for them. We'll start with the top, Roger sure. Clemens. Clemens, well, I think you know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Barry Bonds. Bonds, yes. Sammy Sosa. Sosa. Uh, I should have come prepared for this. I think I'd say yes. I think he's actually. I don't. He's probably. Fairly borderline in my book. I don't know if you have his career like war in front of you, not to rely on war. It's mid-50s, I believe. There's actually a reason. Yeah, Yeah, I think it's like 55. I think his on-base percentage is like 344 around that range. Um, There's a reasonable case against Sosa, even with his steroid use. I look at Sosa, I would put him in because of his peak value, what he accomplished in those five years. But I think that you can easily make a case for Sosa when you look at his OPS plus, his war, his runs created plus, and say, you know what, his OBP, he's not deserving even with his numbers. Yeah, I'm looking at him now. He's t- yeah, he's t- six or nine home runs is a lot of home runs. Uh, Over a five-year stretch from 1998 to 2002, he hit 292 home runs. Yeah, and he's he's you know he's in a totally different boat than uh, Clemens and Bonds. Again, this gets into alleged usage. We have no evidence on Sosa. Well, we believe he tested positive for the survey test in 2003. Right, right, and you know if he had to, you know say yes or no, of course you would say that he probably used. You've got to be careful on how you word that, I guess. But My suspicions are that great, he used. We're two of the greatest players of all time you know, before they allegedly did what they did. Sosa clearly took a huge leap forward. So I can see I don't know if that puts them in a different boat or not. Um, I, I'd say I'd probably vote yes in part because I think if a guy is close to me, the it is the Hall of Fame, and I think that maybe pushes him over the top. But he's a tough. He's really, you really got to study him. That's a tough one. How about Piazza? Yes, yeah. Best offensive catcher ever. Not much, not much debate there. Kurt Schilling. Piazza's a no-brainer in my book. Schilling, I'm, uh, I'm a yes on. I agree. I actually think Schilling was one of the more undervalued or underrated players on the Hall of 100 list. Schilling doesn't get the respect. I think part of that is because he has the obnoxious blowhard syndrome. He's a guy that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. But seeing people, even some of his contemporaries, John Smoltz and Tom Glavin ahead of him, that's a mistake. Yeah, you know, and not winning a Cy Young, it's ridiculous, but it hurts him, you know. But he finished second three times as if, you know, finishing second behind Randy Johnson, you know, is an insult to your ability. Um yeah, and, and to me, the postseason, you know, you have to factor that in, and there's no denying what he did in the postseason. I agree. Craig Biggio. Biggio, I, I'm yes, you know. I don't think he's as strong as a lot of the stat heads want to believe, but I'm, I'm yes on him. I agree. I put him in. I think he compares favorably with Roberto Alomar and Ryan Sandberg. I think when you look at the three of them together, uh, they have very similar numbers, very similar career value. I don't have any problem with Sandberg being in. I don't have any problem with Alomar being in. I think BGO should join them. I actually think Lou Whitaker should join them, too. When you look at his numbers, they're similar to all three of those guys, too. But that's that's another story for another day. Yeah, I mean... Again, if we look at peak value, I don't have the three guys in front of me. I, you know, maybe Sandberg and Alomar are a little ahead of Biggio, although he was pretty awesome there for a few years in the uh, late 90s. Kenny Lofton. Yeah, I think I'm short. I think I'm a no on Lofton. I know he has a, you know, a, a pretty decent case. I'd have to, to be honest, I'd probably have to study him a little more. Um I think I would say no. I know his war is pretty good. That's putting a lot of faith in his 
his defensive ability. Um, it's putting a lot of faith in defensive metrics. Defensive metrics, right. <laughs> yeah, I think we know he was an excellent defender. I just, to what degree, is tough to gauge. I think I look at it, too, and I kind of see a guy, okay, he was a great player for maybe six, seven years. And then he was a good player, and he had value. If we focus on peak, I mean, I you know, I see six really good seasons, six, seven good seasons, and then a lot of years where he's a, you know, one to three win kind of player, which adds value, but is that Hall of Fame value? His career line, actually, I when I looked at Lofton and made my case for him, I compared him to Ashburn, Tim Raines, who I think should be in, and uh, another guy who they play different positions but actually have very similar values, similar careers, is Ryan Sandberg. And I think that's a fair comparison because, you know, look, Kenny Lofton may have used, for all we know. I don't think he did. My sniff test tells me that Kenny Lofton did not use steroids. Uh, it is tough to gauge him against some of his contemporaries in the outfield, like Sosa and Manny Ramirez. They were bliss- right. He was creating runs in a very different way. Exactly. And... You know, we do forget how good he was there, you know, leading the league five straight years in steals, you know, 400 on base, you know, several seasons. Uh, he, go, he won four gold gloves, not that that matters, but it does point to that he was viewed as a as a great defender in, in his time. And he played on a lot of good teams, you know. Uh, the Indians were great during his years there. He had a lot of uh, other quality teammates, but... Um, he played on winning teams, you know, many, many times. So, yeah, yep. he's close. Obviously, he doesn't have a chance to get in, but, yeah, he's, he's close. And it's tough, you know, it's tough to – there are so many players, and particularly outfielders, um, from sort of this 80s – maybe going back to the 70s and the Reggie Smith, you know, types who are all clustered with similar value going by war. And how do you – sort of separate one guy from the other it's you know there's so many guys you know larry walker and and so on who are right around that same area in value do you put walker in i think i have a no on walker there's the coors effect which bothers me a little bit you know here's the trouble though i'm a mariners fan so i love edgar martinez i can't realistically say i'd vote for edgar in not Larry Walker, you know, because the argument against Walker, well, 1,300 career RBIs, 1,300 runs, so he didn't have the, you know, big long career, which is also sort of the strike against Edgar. So maybe I am a yes on Walker. Yeah, I'd vote for both Edgar and, and Walker, but they're they're 9 and 10. I, I think I'd vote for Tim Raines over them, all the guys we discussed over right. them. You'd vote Raines in, I imagine? Raines, I'm, yeah. I mean, again, he's a guy, I don't think he's the obvious candidate like a lot of the stat heads think he is um you know but for several years of the 80s as good a player as anybody in the game and that that puts you in in my book mcguire palmero bagwell uh yes on bagwell yes on mcguire and palmero is he's maybe the hardest case of all because he did test positive after so the, you would weigh that against him more. You would weigh that would, actual positive test against him. Um, Even though he a, really did the same thing. We know he did the same thing as McGuire. Only a little bit. Yeah, you're right. I, I mean, I'm I'm a yes on Palmero. It gets a little bit into even leaving, let's just leave the PD element out of it. Um, 569 home runs, 1,800 RBIs, 3,000 hits. Um, there's no player with similar numbers who wasn't a no-brainer Hall of Famer. On the other hand, we also know he was never the best first baseman in his league. Um, you know, Open his OPS plus falls below Hall of Fame standards. His runs created plus falls below. Yeah, uh, he's one of those guys... It's you know we talked about different kinds of Hall of Famers. There's the guys that like Kofax that just have a short peak, but the peak is so good that they get in. Right. There are guys who have career end peak, and those are the all-time greats. But then there are the guys like Eddie Murray, who are just very good for a long period of time, right. and those guys get in too. Don Sutton. Well, and that's yeah, that's what we talked about, which is historically more what the writers go for. Yeah, Palmero is kind of a Don Sutton of hitters. You know, nobody ever considered Don Sutton the best pitcher in the league. Nobody ever considered Palmero the best first baseman, let alone the best player. But he was so consistent for so long. I would I would go ye I probably would go yes. Um and but I, I can sort of understand why people would 
would say no. What's his career war? Sixty-six. Um, but he, it's uh, about that's about the Hall of Fame average. Yeah, he only had at first five, base. You know, on, I'm looking at Baseball Reference here. He only had four, five-win seasons. So, you know, not a high peak. You know, even though Kenny Lofton had six. Yeah, no, that's what, yeah, exactly. So t- again, totally different kind of player. Lofton with a great peak. Palmero just the consistency. You know, the same year for ten years in a row. Yeah, he's. I think I didn't give you an answer there. I guess I'm. <laughs> I think, like Sosa, he is borderline. Yeah. I think his uh, his candidacy is more borderline than his traditional counting numbers suggest. I would put him in, but he's one of those guys. I can see a totally valid argument against him just yep. based on his numbers. Yep. Yeah. Now, if you had this, if you could only vote for Palmero or Sosa, which way do you go? I think I would probably go towards Palmero over Sosa, but those two are right behind each other. I'd vote. I'd probably vote for Lofton over both of them. Interesting, yeah. And uh, Palmero Sosa to me again is a little bit of. For five years there, everybody knew who Sammy Sosa was, and he was, you know, for better or for worse, one of the most important players in baseball for a significant period of time. So maybe I'd probably give the slight edge to Sosa, but yeah, Palmero, he's tough. It's tough when you get into that logic, though, because when you think about it right now, you, you know who one of the most famous players in baseball is. Tommy John. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, or or Bo Jackson. We just ran a special uh, 30 for 30 on Bo Jackson, and there was a line. <laughs> There's a line right at the end of that. I, I don't know who said it, you know, but if he hadn't hurt his hip, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. Well, of course, it's a ridiculous statement because um, he wasn't very good. Football Hall of Fame, maybe. Football man, Hall right? of Fame, maybe, but definitely not baseball. But yeah, you're right. For two or three years, he was one of the most famous players in baseball. So you can't. Sure. You can't go on fame exactly. Like I, I should make it clear that's just sort of sort of a potential tiebreaker uh, element for me of sorts. I think that's fair. You've been listening to David Schoenfield. You can read David's work on ESPN.com and in ESPN the magazine. Check out the Hall 100 and give him a follow on Twitter at D Schoenfield. David, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast. No, today. glad to join you, Ross. Uh, fun, fun talking about this kind of stuff. <laughs> 